Hi. Hello. I'm Lee. I love Jesus. I love horror movies. And I love horror movies because I love Jesus. <laughs> I'd really like to thank Matt McGill, my dear friend, for giving me this opportunity. It's a privilege. And I believe, I'm a firm believer that vulnerability is the best way to make an immediate connection with the audience. And when I'm dealing with something like horror, and some of you might be uncomfortable, like, what is, what is she going to show? Is she going to do anything that's going to scare me? I, my intention is not to scar you. I just want to introduce you to the one that was scarred for you, OK? So that's the, that's the point. Um, but I, I will be vulnerable with you right up front. I'm going to tell you something that uh, I hope stays in this room. <laughs> I, uh, this is true, I'm, I'm an adult and I'm still scared of the dark. I, I am. Like, I, I, there have been moments in my life where the, the path from my bathroom to my bed, I, I can leap, I can, I can fly if needed when the lights are out and I'm, I'm kind of scared that something might grab me in the dark. So. Um, and it's just the unknown, you know? Just, I mean, I, I, I'm not like afraid of every monster under my bed, not everyone, okay? But like, I'm just a, a little bit nervous because the darkness makes me feel afraid of the unknown, afraid of the unseen. I don't know what's gonna happen. And, and you know what always, the darkness always makes me want really bad? The light. I mean, as soon as the light comes on, like, I'm, I'm not afraid anymore. If as soon as the light comes on, I'm like, oh, thank God. The light came on. So I like horror films, and, and that, that was completely unrelated to, to my thesis. Don't worry. That was just being vulnerable with you. So d you can just discard that. Discard that, please. Throw it away. Uh, I think maybe to understand why I'm a weirdo that likes horror films because I love Jesus, that's a kind of a weird connection to make. I know that some of you think that horror films are the devil. Is Like if there's any genre of film, we can all safely assume, right, that horror films, films are the devil's genre, right? That's the devil's genre. Uh, and so if we're good Christians, we've been told, don't watch it, don't look at it, don't meditate it, don't fill your mind with it, because it's evil. Did you notice the word I just used? Evil? Do you know that outside of horror films, you don't have the language of moral absolutes anymore? If you start to say something's evil, you're judged as being the ultimate sinner because the only sin you can commit nowadays is intolerance. You can't call anything evil, but in a horror film, you can. <laughs> and you know what? If there's evil, there's also good. Amen. And not just good, not an airy fairy, oh, that's good, I like that. I mean a source of good that's tangible, and you long for it when you watch a horror film. And you don't long for an it, Pennywise, you long for Jesus. 
okay. So the first time I became, like when I got saved, as we like to call it, I was five years old. I'll tell you how I got saved. It was actually through horror. That's probably why I like horror films. I'm five years old, I'm uh, at a VBS, and there was a picture on the wall. And this picture was of Jesus dying on the cross. And it wasn't one of those pretty pictures of Jesus dying on the cross. His face was contorted in agony. His eyes were rolling up in his head because he was hurt so bad. He was, he was like shredded. This was like before Mel Gibson's passion. And I stood in front of that image and I was horrified by it. I was scared to death of it because I knew I'd seen other pictures of Jesus and why was he there? And then at five years old, like some of you got saved because somebody gave an invitation and somebody you know, wrote, wrote, your, wrote a card or you read a book or you had a friend lead you to Christ. I was looking at that picture and you know what I heard? I'm the one that's supposed to be there. I'm the one that's supposed to be on that cross. Why is he on that cross? Why is Jesus on that cross? I don't know. I don't get it. Why is he on the... I should be there. I was five. Y'all are like, that's some heavy guilt for a five-year-old. Wow. Like, she's messed up. But I was so horrified. And then I realized the depth of love that Christ had for me. That he took my place. And that's when I became a Christian. (laughs) At five. That was my, I saw a picture, and I was horrified by it, so I became Jesus's, because he scared me (laughs) with his love. Okay. So I'm six. Now I'm six. I'm going uh, trick-or-treating with my poppy. It's my grandfather. Um, Grandfather's supposed to pick me up to go uh, trick-or-treat. And, uh, and I'm a little nervous. My dad is a magician, so I always grew up with guys around me that wanted to scare me by putting on scary masks and uh, jump out of corners. Like, I'm a little skittish, okay? <laughs> I've been, yes, it's, it's childhood trauma. It is, okay? Uh, and so I was, a bit, I was a bit worried about going uh, trick-or-treating uh, with Poppy because people don't always dress up as carrots and pumpkins on Halloween night. Sometimes they dress up scary, and I was a little terrified of that. But then uh, Poppy was running a little late, so me and my twin sister, Lauren, are excited, and the door, the, uh, the, a knock on the door comes, and I remember opening the door. And my sister's reaction was to run and hide in the, clo- hide in the bathroom. Because who was at the door was one Freddy Krueger. I think I have a pic of him. Yeah, here's Fred. At six, that guy shows up to trick-or-treat with me. And Poppy's standing there with his, his bladed fingers out in front of me. He goes, come with me. And I was like, Lauren, I mean, I'm literally shaking. And he goes, he goes, Lee, it's Poppy. Let's go trick-or-treating. And so I reached out my hand and like Jasmine touching Aladdin's hand and saying, I trust you. I walked out the door and I clung to his hand. And then something happened that 
I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed again to admit to you because I'm not sure, some, some of y'all are gonna think I'm committing heresy, I'm pretty sure. Um, I, I got this incredible sense of confidence. I got this incredible sense of courage. I mean, nothing could scare me that night. Forget being afraid of anything spooky that I would run into, goblins, ghouls, grotesque, whatever. I don't care if you have come up to me with a severed head. Do you know who I'm walking with? I mean, I'm walking with that guy. I'm with, and you know what? He likes me. I was like Sally Field's iconic Academy Award speech where she just says, I can't believe you like me. You really, really like me. She's been grilled for that for years. But in that moment, I felt this euphoria because I was holding hands with the scariest person on the street. And he loved me. And he was good. And in that moment, I heard the Holy Spirit go, um, you know that's me, right? You know I'm much scarier. I'm much more terrifying than Freddy Krueger. And I'm holding your hand. You have no business being afraid. I've got you. And I started to relate and love Jesus for being the most terrifying monster, which felt a little like I can't go to church and go, how do you relate to Jesus? Father, Prince of Peace, oh, monster? No, <laughs> okay, not, not that, but like, follow me here. What if, like, you know Michael Myers, you know that the bad thing about Michael Myers and the Halloween story is that he can't be killed. I mean, you can do anything to Michael Myers. You can set him on fire. You can shoot him five times in the chest. He can't be killed, and he's always walking. He never runs. He's the shape. And, I, and I'm like, I feel like I could take him in a fight, maybe, but, but he eventually will get me because there's nothing you can do to escape Michael Myers when he wants you. And I thought... What if the monster that's pursuing you and me was good? And what if he couldn't be killed again? And what if he never, ever, ever stopped? And no matter how much you run, and no matter where you hide, and no matter what you do to escape his love, he won't let you because he's so much better than Michael Myers. And the reason your, your heart, when you watch Halloween, you go, ooh, that's like scary. That, some, some, that darkness is just making me feel kind of freaked out. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, it is because you know what? That's deeply true in reality. My sister has a thesis. My sister Lauren has a thesis that everything that terrifies you and me is the antithesis to the holy thesis. That means that anytime we say in a horror film, oh my gosh, that's scary, that's messed up, that's distorted, that's awful, you're implying that there is a model that can be distorted. There is a right that can be made wrong. There's a brokenness that can be made whole. Everything, the, the horror genre just serves to push your face into your need for God. Shove your nose in it. But maybe I should prove it with, like, examples. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Okay. Okay. So uh, I'll, I'll read my patron saint, Flannery O'Connor, to give me some legitimacy. I love her. Flannery, thanks. When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little and use more normal ways of talking to it. When you have to assume that your audience does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout. And to the blind, you draw large and startling fi figures. Flannery O'Connor is saying, we live in a world and people don't know what to be horrified by. I mean, we're offended by everything. We don't know what's really horrifying. We're scared of everything. We don't know what's truly horrifying, but with a Christian lens, the Christian can actually understand, understand what horror is because only the Christian really has the parameters of right and wrong, good and evil. In fact, most horror, if not all the best of it, I would say all of the best horror films, actually depend on the Judeo-Christian worldview for the fear that they inflict. And with that, I'm about to show you one of the most iconic scenes in, 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 in movies, horror movies. I'm sorry, this does scare me too. The psycho scene from, uh, the shower scene from Psycho.
Anybody want to shower? <laughs> just, just asking. I mean, this is called refreshment, so I just thought, you know. Oh, poor, poor Janet Lee gets killed in the shower. You know, the advertising campaign for Psycho is really interesting, if you're a fan of horror like I am. Hitchcock absolutely insisted that audiences not be admitted to Psycho after the show started. You had to be on time to see Psycho. There was, that was the advertisement. Do not miss it. Don't share the secrets of Psycho. We won't, there's, I'm, I'm not kidding. If you're the President of the United States or the Queen of England, God bless her soul, you will not be admitted late to Psycho. Truly. See, Hitchcock knew that the horror in Psycho depended on context. It depended on you knowing what came before to be truly horrified. And I know we can look at that Psycho scene and go, man, that's, that's messed up, right? But it'll be scarier for you, Hitchcock says, if you see the whole thing that leads up to the shower. See, Marion Crane works at a bank. She is in an adulterous affair with a married man. And a guy comes into the bank at the beginning of the movie, and he deposits $40,000. And it's, a, it's to pay for his daughter's wedding. That's a big wedding. And Marion is thinking, I need some money to start a new life with this guy who's married. So Marion steals $40,000 intended for a wedding pre present. She steals from something legitimate to fund her illegitimate love. Okay? Then she stops on the road at the Bates Motel, and she has a conversation one, with one very cute Norman Bates, played by the amazing Anthony Perkins, who tells her he's, he's feeling a little trapped by his mother. No spoilers. <laughs> but... You know, we all go a little mad sometimes, right? And during this conversation with Norman, Marion sees a reflection of her own entrapment. She feels this crushing guilt for stealing this money, for betraying her employer, for, for being a dishonest person. So she decides, you know what? Tomorrow I'm going to go back, I'm going to return the money, and I'm going to make it right. And what is the thing she does first? She takes a shower. Because tomorrow, she's going to do the right thing. Today, I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to cleanse myself from this impurity. I'm going to wash off. In other words, Marion Crane has a self-salvation project. We all do something, kind of like Kelsey said, said, said before me, we all go someplace to cleanse ourselves, but we go to the wrong place. And she goes to the shower, and there the judgment that she meets is immediate, and she dies. And Psycho does beautifully what no other horror film has before it. She stares at you, right? Her corpse stares at you for a long, uncomfortable time. You know why that's beautiful? Because she's saying in a symbol. She's showing rather than telling. My self-salvation project, my self-cleansing didn't work, didn't turn out well, and neither will yours. Okay.
Um, another great horror film that shows us our need for grace is what I consider one of the best monster movies ever ever made, Alien. Right? Oh my gosh, I saw that way too soon. <laughs> way too soon. Uh, Alien is about the the crew of the Nostromo. They're a, they 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 work in a spaceship far 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 away. Uh, away from our galaxy, in a galaxy far, far away, right? In 1979, um, in Alien. And uh, they're going, the Nostromo, by the way, is Italian. It actually means an, an expatriate. Okay, so expatriates live in a country that is not their native land, by choice or by force. Okay, think about this. I told you horror depends on our understanding of Judeo-Christian myth for the horror it creates, and Alien is all about Jesus by being all about not being about Jesus. <laughs> because the, gospel, the, the, the horror of Alien is to show you the fall of man without any intervention, any hope of redemption. It's the gospel. It's the, so, it's the story of the fall without Christ. I'll show you. I'll show you. You don't believe me. I know. You know what Alien's tagline is? Y'all remember it? In space, no one can hear you scream. You know, yeah, there it is. Look at that gnarly egg. Okay. Um, you know why that's kind of chilling? That in space, no one can... You know what the assumption is in that claim? That someone can. <laughs> and it would be terrifying if he couldn't. We assume that when we cry out and go, I mean, even atheists are like, oh God, help me sometimes. In a foxhole, there are no atheists. Oh God, help me. we assume there's somebody to hear us. And an alien, there's no one. One of the most terrifying scenes is Ripley, Ripley going through the, through the ship at the end of the ship. The ship's going to self-destruct. They call the ship Mother. She, the, she's saying, Mother, Mother, I turned the self-destruct off. I've got the coolant. Mother, don't destroy the ship. And, she, and Mother replies, self-destruct is unavoidable. There's, she's calling out to her parent, and her parent says, no. But John Hurt, who I honestly have a prejudice for in the movie because he's British, right? and I assume British people are smarter than me. <laughs> okay? So John Hurt is the last person that I would assume to be the, be the first victim. I mean, he's in Harry Potter. Voldemort did great things. Terrible, but great. Ooh. <laughs> All right? John Hurt, see, they land on a they get a distress signal from a planet. They land. Uh, they see a bunch of people who are apparently eat, destroyed from the inside out. We should probably check that out, right? Yeah? So, um, so John Hurt goes and puts his face over an opening egg. <laughs> he looks into something he shouldn't. And you know what happens to John Hurt? Well, he gets a face hugger 
to the face. That's what happens to John Hurt. I wish I could say that was the worst thing that happened to John Hurt, but it wasn't. And most people would sit, we have talked about the rape and imagery in, uh, in Alien and the abuse of the human form. But in, in Alien, when you touch the forbidden fruit, when you handle and look into what you should not look into to receive that special knowledge and become, I don't know, like God. It opens sin up and what happens to the human form created in the Imago Dei is it sin defaces and unmakes the identity of the person who's sinning. And that is what we're seeing. That's it. And you know, I wish I could tell you that that was the worst part of what happened to John Hurt, but it's not because eventually that gnarly thing walks off to terrorize me under my bed. And, <laughs> that, and he has what the movie talks about as a chest burster. He's eating with his friends, having a meal, and all of a sudden he starts coughing, and they're all like, is he okay? He's choking, whatever. And get this, guys, out of his chest, out of his heart, comes this xenomorph. Boom! <laughs> it's going all over the ship, and it's tiny. It's tiny, but it'll grow. This tiny little thing that just came out of his heart destroys the whole ship. Just the whole ship. The only person that I know for sure makes out is the cat. Because it's human beings who deal with the curse. Do you know how savage and how awful and sin is? The Bible says that out of the heart come murder, adultery, Sinful thoughts. We can hear it in scripture, but in Alien, we see it. It's the gospel without hope. How much time do I have, Matt? I, I think I'm going to wrap this up. Okay, my favorite movie, my favorite horror movie of all time is The Silence of the Lambs. Cards on the table. After Stranger Things, it's probably my favorite story. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, it sounds scary, doesn't it? What happened to those lambs that made them silent? You know? Don't you kind of worry? Doesn't it raise a question? I bet. Mm, what happened? But the story centers on Clarice Starling, my other patron saint, Jodie Foster. Um, she, she works at the FBI. She's from Virginia. And her big childhood trauma is the reason that she works in the FBI. Because she grew up on a sheep farm after her dad died. And she heard on the sheep farm the screaming, the terrible screaming of the lambs at slaughter. And Clarice Starling enters, enters the pen with the sheep. She wants to free them. She opens the pen, but she says, they're too stupid, they're too scared, they won't move. 
but she grabs one of them and she takes it with her and she's carrying it, but he's so, so heavy she can't save him and he ends up dying. Her whole motivation for saving Catherine Martin is to finally silence the terrible screaming of the lambs. The title of Silence of the Lambs is the gospel because you and I are sheep that have been silenced. Our screaming has stopped. And you know why? Because like Clarice learns in that moment that just opening the pen for the sheep isn't enough. For her to save Catherine Martin, she has to go in to the pen. She has to go in to the pit to save Catherine Martin, the person enslaved by Buffalo Bill, who's using her skin, using people's skin as clothing because he wants to transform himself into something beautiful, into something right. And that's just distorted, right? But like, that's also true. <laughs> like, I hate, hate Buffalo Bill, but he's right. Like, it's not, like, I need to be clothed in the skin of someone else, just not Catherine Martin's skin. (sighs) Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's the hymn that's playing when Clarice goes to her dad's funeral. Because Silence of the Lambs is all about hiding yourself in the identity of another. You get Christ or you get Catherine Martin's skin. But to save Catherine Martin, but to save Catherine Martin, Clarice bravely shows up to the pit. She says, FBI, you're safe. She's the only one there. There's no one coming. And Catherine Martin, you would think, would be just full of gratitude, right? Just full of gratitude. Thank you. Thank you, Clarice, for saving me. I appreciate you so much. No, she is unlovely. She's like, where are you going? Don't you leave me here. He goes, Catherine, I have to to find him. I have to go find him, the person who has you here. And she says to Clarice, she goes, don't you leave me, you effing bitch. She curses her savior. The one that's coming to save her. You know what she did? She just said, you're a bitch. Sometimes we think of salvation like God will, God will save me when I'm right. But you know what? I know I have cursed my savior, met his salvation with I'm not sure if you're right. I'm not sure if you're good. And I've said, where are you going, you effing bitch, to God? But my rejection of him, my cursing of him, did not stop his salvation of me. The reason that I know that horror is the genre that is able to so laser point and fit in the groove of the gospel, the reason I know that horror is God's and the gospel's genre is that God rescued me from mine. God enters my horror story and your horror story and we're all horror stories. He only raises dead people. He only brings dead people back to life. And if he didn't enter horror, none of us would be here because he's the good monster. And on and, and, and an image for God, you know that verse, John 3, 16, that you know and love? 
You know? You know what comes right before it? It says, it says that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. See, the snakes were biting, snakes were biting the people of Israel because they were rebelling against God. And the remedy to save them from the snakes was, Moses, you got to put a snake on a cross like this. So when people look at this, they'll be healed and they won't have the venom in them anymore. And this will be, be an image of what the gospel is. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of disturbed by the idea of Jesus as snake because snake is the original villain I mean you don't get much more scary than snake it makes us uncomfortable right to think of Jesus that way but that's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God I can believe that God forgives my sin. I can believe that he loves me, but you're pushing it a little bit when you say he became my sin. I mean, that's a little, that's excessive, right? He becomes the serpent of my sin on the cross. Him who knew no sin becomes my porn addiction. My drunkenness. That time that I betrayed the trust of my best friend. And the thing that I'm most ashamed of, not just became my sin, but the thing that shames me really bad, like 37 years of singleness, of feeling unwanted and unloved, becoming that shame for me so that that no longer identifies me and that's no longer my identity. He is. And, she sa- and he says, she's mine. Hey, anybody want a shower? Shower. 